This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcasting weather balloon innocently floating over a Tory cornfield of incompetence. I'm Alexandre. I hope you already have your tickets for our live show in London next Wednesday the 15th at Leicester Square Theatre. Ian, Roz and Aisha will be joining me for a metropolitan gala of political debate, terrible puns and who knows, oh God, what else? Some tickets are still available. There's a link in the show notes or just go to leicestersquaretheatre.com. Let us celebrate Liz, expose our Johnson, get bitchy about Rishi and sneer at Keir. I look forward to seeing you there in warm, cosy, Ramona darkness beyond the footlights. Now on today's show. Rishi Sunak reshuffles the deck chairs, but his immediate predecessors are determined to battle him for the nation's attentions. Why are so many so desperate to captain the sinking Tory ship? Plus, you don't have to be an asshole to work here, but it helps. With Dominic Raab surviving the reshuffle, despite two dozen allegations of bullying against him, why does bad management get you so far in Westminster? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, I am big. It's the economics that got small. <laughs> like a deluded silent era star, Liz Truss seems determined to descend that marble staircase to a lunatic close-up. <laughs> but why are comebacks so hard and which are our favorite? Let's meet the panel. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Alex. Our thoughts are with the victims of the enormous earthquakes that devastated parts of Turkey and Syria on Sunday. According to the BBC, the death toll has now passed 11,000 people, and I have not heard a single expert who thinks that grim number will not continue to rise. How are the rescue attempts complicated by the already volatile geopolitics in that region? Well, that terrible earthquake effectively hit um, three different sort of political zones. You've got obviously Turkey itself, uh, some large cities there. For example, Gaziantep has over a million people in it. And then you've got the bit of Syria that is still controlled by uh, rebels. And that, that has a population of 5 million living, if you think of the area to the sort of north and west of Aleppo. But then you also have a bit of Syria that is under government control, and as it happens, is a part of Syria that is considered the homeland of the Alawites, who are, you know, the the ruling sect, and 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 of course uh, Bashar al-Assad himself comes from that sect. In addition to the just the terrible tragedy that's occurred, the urgent need for relief support. You've got very complicated questions about who controls access to those different areas and whether or not, for example, the Syrian regime will be able to take advantage of this uh, in order to, to rehabilitate themselves in the international community. As it happens, I wrote a bit about this on my Substack. So if anyone's interested, check it out. Hannah Fern is a columnist and reporter for the iPaper and the Independent. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. On Wednesday, we had a surprise and extremely welcome visit from President Zelensky. What, what is the significance of the visit internationally, first of all? Internationally, I think the timing is interesting. Um, as you know, I've discussed uh, earlier this week, the, there is an expectation of a new push from Putin in the Donbass region, obviously that incredibly significant region uh, in, in the um, war. And ahead of that, Zelensky needs to shore up his international relationships, the allyship of the group of Western nations that we essentially, it seems from today, are seen as the leader of. It's mm. interesting that in his speech in Parliament, he praised Boris Johnson for bringing together that partnership. And he specifically mentioned that his view um, that 
Boris had sort of understood the need to stand up to declare that that, that allyship early before other nations had yeah, yeah, yeah. got there. Yeah. So that, the sort of first mover advantage. Yeah, so yeah. it feels now like uh, the, the timing of this is about um, solidifying that partnership of Western nations ahead of the attack on the Donbass from Putin that is expected uh, later this month. And sort of taking that next step from what I saw of his speech, making a little sort of foray into its its aerial power. Yes, so there, there were commitments uh, today from Rishi Sunak around greater uh, training <coughs> support. Now, training up um, Ukrainian pilots, uh, which fighter pilots, which we hadn't been doing previously. Um, so, which yeah. is all we can provide because we don't actually have the planes they need. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, what we can provide, we're going to do so. Now, now how about domestically? Someone posted a photo of um, Sunak embracing Zelensky with the rather unkind caption, Sunak clings to his only popular policy. Is it too cynical to point out that the Ukraine conflict occasionally seems to be used for for domestic political gain? It does. Gain? I mean, maybe Sunak's going to be the next, yeah, one to pop up every time he's in trouble. There'll be a kind of a caption, uh, shaking hands, just like Boris Johnson. But actually, I think whether you call this cynical or not, I think there is another kind of facet to this domestically, which is about we're going to be spending quite a lot of money on these training programs, on providing more tanks and so on then um, what we're going to be doing is spending scarce public funds on that. And, of course, there are very good geopolitical reasons for doing this. But in terms of what's going on at home, we've got Mm. cost of living and so on, um, actually making sure that there is domestic support for what we're continuing to do in Ukraine is really important, especially as, let's not forget, a lot of the pro-Brexit crew aren't keen on us wading into other conflicts and, and being a kind of police person of the world. So I think it's it's not just about Sunak individually. It's about trying to hold the Conservative Party and the country together on why we're doing this. Mm. Seth Tevos is a journalist and historian, author of several books and private members clubs and corruption in British politics. Hello, Seth. Hello, hello. This story of a of a Chinese balloon shot down over U.S. airspace is a is a strange one. China claims it was just a weather balloon, while still castigating the U.S. for popping it above South Carolina. Has has the storm around it been overinflated? I didn't write that. Oh yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been great fun, hasn't it? Um, the the alibi about the uh, balloon just being a weather balloon, which conveniently is too high for fighter jets to get to it because it's above their maximum ceiling height, and it happens to have gone off course, is a very plausible one. And the reason I say it's a very plausible one is that it's exactly the alibi the Americans use for their spy balloons <laughs> over Russia in the nineteen fifties when doing exactly this. So um, yes, it's a blatantly transparent thing, but of course it's one of those things where um, we know you're lying, you know you're lying, you know that we know that you know you're lying, etc., etc. But um, it's one of those games of international brinksmanship where no one can really call out one another's bluff. Um, the Republicans, interestingly enough, have been trying to make some political capital out of this by pointing out that oscillating poor Joe Biden has waited a whole day to shoot the thing down. But he trumped them, didn't he? He played a blinder because he'd already ordered... For yes. it to be brought down. Oh, indeed. But more to the point, um, this is not the first time the Chinese government has done this over the United States over the last few years. In fact, three of these balloons passed during the Trump administration. <laughs> and the number that was shot down by the Trump administration was zero. Well, one was just a massive blimp of Trump, in fairness. <laughs> uh, well, what we'd, like to, what we'd like to know is whether uh, Trump had one of these Chinese bank accounts of his still operating at the time or not. Yes, I've been listening to uh, American networks um, quite a lot. And the consensus is that uh, by sort of being patient and bringing it down where they have, they can now harvest quite a lot of technical data mm. from it. So it might prove to be quite a, a, a sort of a good reversal for the Americans. 
This week's mini reshuffle came as the dullest political surprise, like opening a Kinder Egg to find that your surprise gift is Greg Hands. Sunak even invented a few departments, because as everyone knows, when you want to stimulate productivity, getting everyone to move desk four times is the best <laughs> way to go about it. Liz Truss, meanwhile, whose decor includes a portrait of Che Guevara dressed as Lord Nelson, a more perfect metaphor for muddled historical memory I could not think of, was cornered by those Marxists at the Spectator, throwing such vicious softballs at her, she managed to miss them and whack herself in the face again and again. Never mind, it's like that moment in Memento, where he realises what is going on, only to forget it again the next day. Liz Truss's greatest weakness is also her superpower, too dim to realise her own inanity. Hannah, Sunak reorganised a few departments and, combined with the sacking of Nadim Zahawi, needed a mini-reshuffle. But the painfully dysfunctional Home Office remains untouched and the drag anchor named Rab remains in post. Is Sunak in a stronger or weaker position after this? I think probably immediately politically stronger within his party, but nationally even weaker than he already was. I mean, mm. Rab still in post is... Uh, an embarrassment. Uh, how that continues, I've no idea. The longer it goes on, the dafter he looks because he's making the exact same mistakes he made around Zahawi, hmm. just waiting too long. It's like everyone knows he's going to go at it's some got, point. He's got to go. Uh, you know, Let's just wait for the official report, which will confirm the fact that he needs to go. He also, I think, looks a bit panicky with some of his choices. So, uh, everyone's very delighted that you know energy and net zero are together at the top table. Obviously, energy is very important. Giving Grant Shapps extra power is a clever thing for Sunak. It's you know one of his closest uh, allies and mm. backers at the moment, um, and it sounds good and so on. But really, it shows that he hasn't really got that many other people he can call on whenever he needs to point someone, uh, whenever he needs to consolidate his strength. It's the the same old individuals. Um, And also, some of the things that he's done that haven't really been talked about that much are remarkable. For example, we've got a situation where he's removed capital spending from uh, the levelling up department entirely, just removed their ability to... To, to spend so on how large... are you going to level up without capital spending yeah so the, well the tre- so it's all under the guise of the treasury are removing it but yeah so the leveling up department can't spend now on major projects uh, i mean so what's that about looks panicky the the the, the official um Reason given is that there's not enough assurances that departments working functionally to make sensible decisions. I mean, <laughs> that's an admission of failure. Mm. Um, secondly, we've got uh, further down the reshuffle on the bits that nobody notices. We're on our sixth housing minister in a year. Within a year, sixth. This is a national crisis where it's affecting every part of the British economy, the the housing crisis. But apparently it's so little of a priority for this government that we're on the sixth person to handle it in less than than a year. It's phenomenal. It's extraordinary, uh, isn't it? I think it's 12th in... Yeah, it's it's 13 in 14 years, yeah. Uh, Just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. Um, As a former civil servant, and I was around at the time the DTI, the as was reformed into loads of different things in every brief move. And I can tell you that those departments will be paralysed for mm-hmm. it. I mean, it mm-hmm. might be a good move for the future in general. I don't. I am agnostic on that. But I can tell you that if you're looking for quick wins, which we should be mm-hmm. being in the current economic situation that we are, just getting everyone to not know who they're reporting to, what team they're at, mm-hmm. what building they're working out of, what their brief is, it will go on for months. Junior people will be put on temporary promotions. Even more junior people will be promoted while recruitment is happening. It, nothing mm. will happen in those departments mm. for months. Months, yeah. And yeah. they are departments that you need to be acting now. 
Um, yes, and Alex, you were asking about the Home Office in particular, yeah. and it's worth bearing in mind... The one bloody place that looks as if yeah. it really does need root and branch reform. But the reason why the Home Office is in the shape that it is today is that about 20 years ago, Charles Clark was responsible for the severing of the Home Office into two, which is why we have such a powerful Justice Department, and it came down in no small part to which bits of the job do I not want to be responsible for? The torment of many home secretaries historically was god i hate these latest prison figures it's really awful so let's give them give prisons to the justice secretary i'm not <laughs> going to be responsible for that and so you have a home secretary who's responsible for parts of the justice system but not others are, it, are we saying this is down to the mess they inherited from labor <laughs> <laughs> in part be quiet <laughs> um hannah he he has also appointed 30p lee anderson as deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. In in what way does Anderson embody the qualities of integrity, professionalism and transparency <laughs> that Sunak promised uh, yeah, of his administration? Brilliant uh, caricature of all of those qualities. So some of the things that he's done in recent years, he uh, basically pretended that one of his friends was a, was a swing voter in the 2019 <laughs> election and interviewed him, uh, basically looking like he was turning around the views of a local constituent. Oh, yes, with Michael Craig. And he was caught on a hot mic, wasn't yeah, absolutely. he? Actually making the phone call, making, saying, look, yeah. we're going to come around, pretend you're not my mate. Yeah, absolutely. Very recently caused outcry when he accused people who need to use a food bank because of their desperate financial desperation of basically being unable to cook. And that's why they ended up needing a food bank, because they don't know how to use produce properly to make a meal, which is just outright offensive. Hence then, 30p Lee, isn't it? 30p that Lee. He, he and claimed you could make a meal Make a meal for 30p. for 30p. I mean, I don't know if he's been shopping lately. He posted <laughs> a photo. Don't buy a single item for 30p. He posted anymore. a photo of two Tesco's wheat biscuits and a pint of milk. Wow. Um, and said you could get, you could get. Uh, uh, That's yeah, a meal. No, you could get like 10 meals out of that. Maybe. If you, if you only want to eat. Um, yes. And then he also doxed his member of staff. Remember that? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So he basically was uh, saying that um, everyone's discussion about the cost of living meant that, um, you know, people were completely overestimating how much you need to survive, uh, you know, as a young person. These days, he talked, he basically described what his member of staff earned, put a photo out of her out online without, well, we don't know if it was with her permission or not, but essentially opened her up to huge amount of online abuse. Uh, well, and, and some scrutiny about the fact that she actually came from quite a rich family. And, and she came from a, a rich family and therefore... Probably yeah. had a lot more than that, arguably, to, to survive on. But more to the point, she's a young woman with no family responsibilities, no, uh, is there, no can children I ask to everyone, provide for. Uh, is there some strategic master uh, move that I'm not seeing here? Because it seems to me that it will be maximum a month before the Anderson the does something that basically it means he has to, me, to be removed. And this is conjecture only. I, this is not coming from anything I've heard. But... That there can't be that many people left who are so solidly behind Sunak's leadership that they can be placed into these roles. It's simply mm. about who can uh, back him publicly. That's a tough position for him to be in. But I wonder if this is also part of the uh, mindset that with this is going to be a 1992 election, not a 1997 election. The way Rishi Sunak does this is to follow John Major's lead of not only having a competent government, but going after the core vote strategy that won the Tories in the 1992 election unexpectedly. And it did. It also was the core vote strategy that got the Tories a 1997 landslide against them. Mm. <laughs> that is the question yes. mark. I can remember Prime Ministers since Cameron promising to make the UK a science and technology superpower. It's like my favourite phrase. I see it <laughs> twice yearly in headlines. Are the brass plaques outside Whitehall departments the real obstacle here, do you think, Seth? No. I mean, um, this has been going a lot longer since Cameron. Since at least the days of Clement Attlee, you've had more or less every government say this. Are you saying this is down to the mess we inherited from Labour? <laughs> no, because I was then going to say <laughs> Harold Macmillan was the most obvious case, but no. Okay, did so this. this is down to the mess we inherited from Everyone, <laughs> everyone. 
we've all been saying we're going to be a, a innovating a technological economy and re- overhaul the universities. Howard Wilson was big on this. Thatcher, the only prime minister to be a trained research scientist with a science degree, Margaret Thatcher, was really, really keen on this, which started by defunding universities. Um, but if you look at historically how we used to do this cross-public policy, your starting point was, let's actually ask the academics who are really good on this what they should do. Um, and now we instead say, well, let's get a bunch of special advisors and um, political hangers-on and people who've never touched university with a barge pole since they crammed for an essay at the age of 21, what we should do next. And lo and behold, um, universities tend to say, well, that's not actually what we're asking for. You know, they'll say, well, we're happy to raise funds privately. If you give us maybe match funding, if you give us better infrastructure, if you give us better connectivity, if you give us better cross-disciplinary ways of organising universities, we're all for that. But none of this is what the government's offering. So this does look very much like headline chasing rather than something actually that's coming out of any of the, the sort of science and technology economy. Mm. The, the new Tory chairman, Craig Hands, may have let slip in an email he sent to members that he thinks the next general election is 18 months away. Given that, is this actually strategically quite sound in that they only need the headlines. They don't have time for actual product. So they only need to shift the perception of the public. You know, they're a teenager in an untidy bedroom that only needs shout, yes, I'm doing it. Yes, and I I think that's um, actually perfectly logical because if you think about any policy needing three, five, ten years to become visibly apparent, even assuming that this parliament is going to the very dregs of the very end, which it probably is, there isn't enough time to see this. So we are living from headline to headline. Mm. Um, And you saw this in the dying days of governments of all parties. This is nothing new. Arthur, how much can Sunak really expect to change, given that we're so close to local elections and general election, and there is so little money around Whitehall to go around? Well, um, the answer is sort of in the question, isn't it? I mean, almost nothing at all. And I've worked in government departments that have have been reorganised or have had elements of them reorganised. And of course, it's time consuming. And uh, there's lots of displacement activity, which is not to say that you should never do it. There may be good arguments for doing it at certain times. Uh I wonder whether he's doing this in a way to try to send a signal that he hasn't given up on the idea of winning the next election. Because I think, I imagine there's something very uh, damaging for confidence on his own side, but also the wider electorate. If everyone has basically decided, look, you know, you're just the last guy who ended up as PM after the shit show with Truss and Johnson. And, you know, we all know you're going to lose the election in 18 months time. So you're just kind of marking time. So he has to almost overdo the degree to which he says i'm here with a 15-year you know project and yeah yeah yeah. restructuring is only just part of it and and there's also a whiff of management consultant about him you know the the appearance of busyness yeah definitely and 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 people have said you know this is a this is a, a reshuffle made in california and i think um part of that is the is the cultural bit about the you know, the branding and, as you say, the sort of management consultant styling. And then part of it is by is actually the sort of practicalities of of leaning in hard on on the sort of science elements of it. And with that in mind, I think one of one person who we don't talk about very much, but we probably need to, is Michelle Donnellan. You know, until this week, her, her main achievement in politics was to have been Secretary of State for Education for a matter of hours. But apparently she's still... She's still recorded in the corridors of that institution as one of the illustrious former um, former incumbents. But she has been given uh, this new sort of science brief, uh, science and tech brief within within her um, sort of business role. She may be one of those sort of stalking horses who who's given increasingly important jobs in government, who's seen as somehow reliable and capable and therefore is eventually seen as someone who could lead the party. So I, I just wonder whether Michelle Donnellan is, is, is the next Penny Mordant. Um, maybe, the next, maybe the next Cameron, actually. There's something Cameroonian about her, I think, something sort of inoffensive and jolly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yes, perhaps. Hannah, moving on to that extraordinary trust essay yeah. and interview... Um, she said that she didn't regret being PM, 
but has no intention of, of returning. A, a, a free market conservative could hardly get a more friendly interrogation than at home from this fixator. How can she have been so poorly prepared for such obvious questions? They seem to come as a complete shock to her. It's flabbergasting, <laughs> especially considering there are these such obvious questions from the essay she wrote herself and submitted to the public. School. She says. <laughs> really, that's yes, that essay is called Alistair Heath. It was <laughs> it. <laughs> Uh, the thing I found most surprising or most disappointing about the interview actually was the sheer amount of cliche she threw in. There, there was a bridge too far, magic bullet, uh, <laughs> really too much nonsense in there. What was really interesting, though, was that she said she was economically right but politically wrong. That was her, confu- that was her kind of defence. Surely it's the opposite. She was politically right. She got herself elected. Her party was behind this. She had the party mandate. But economically completely wrong because the country, she just just destroyed the economy with her ideas. She seems to, uh, it is this presumably an element of self-preservation that admission of the failure of this magnitude is so deeply embarrassing and difficult to, I guess, digest for yourself that she just, can't take that step. I think that's a charitable view, to be honest. I think she's genuinely stupid. <laughs> I, I do. I really do. I think she's batty. Um, and that's what I heard. What That's what I've heard from everyone. None of it adds from. up. Like when she was elected, I, I got three texts from three completely different people working in different departments who had worked with her. Mm. And all three said in the same words, She's crackers. Mm. I mean, you can see that she must be difficult to work with from this series of events. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just, where would you wouldn't know where Re- you're coming remember from? Remember when, when I explained, you, you never said that. Never, yeah. We never had yeah. that conversation. I wasn't so, expecting you to ask that question. <laughs> I think that the interesting question is to try and figure out what she thinks she's doing, because she's not trying to be prime minister, is she? Um, she says not. I mean, who knows? It, it's hard I don't to think she is. She can't be that. She can't yeah, be that thick. It, that's no. what we said at the time. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard to believe she wants to be leader of the opposition. So, I, you know, I've heard people say that she wants to be the kind of the ideological um, sort of figurehead of, of a certain tendency within the Tory party. But, I mean, even that seems a bit beyond her. Really. She'll, she'll just go off and make half a million a year from some think tank, tank that links American money to to British politics, basically, is what she's going to do. But why now, Arthur? Like, reimagining your legacy is so much easier if you've allowed people some time to forget what actually happened. Yeah. I mean, I... Why so urgent, do you think? So much about her is baffling, and this is one of those things, because... um, it seems that if she'd given it a bit more time, we might have forgotten just how shit she was and, and, and you know, she, it would be easier for her to rewrite the history. One can only assume that she was worried that her stock was falling so fast that she had to try to kind of recover it before it was unrecoverable. I mean, that, that's, the best I, that's the best I've got, but it's, it's inexplicable, really. I mean, yeah. she could definitely have left it until people weren't still trying to reapply for the mortgages they can't get because of the Well, you would have thought. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For, for those, I mean, I speak as someone who, you know, I've been involved in a protracted, uh, you know, house sales situation, which began pre-trust, went bad during trust, and we're still trying to sort it out. And people like us, you know, we, we'd like a few months to, to move on. Yeah, I exactly. Think. But that's that's just two months, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got I've got mayonnaise in my fridge that lasted longer <laughs> than trust. Um, Major Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, all of them, in, in their different ways, took a back seat almost immediately after they left number 10 correctly deducing, I think, that both they and the public had earned a period of rest. Um, Why have Johnson and Truss chosen to be agitators instead? Are we seeing a a change? I know two people are not enough of a sample, but it seems notable to me that both immediate predecessors have 
decided to do something very different to any previous prime minister? I think that this may be just a bit of contingency. So John, Johnson is a is a you know uniquely narcissistic figure in British certainly British recent history. I'm sure we could delve into deeper history to find someone. You know, yes, and maybe so, Seth can tell us about. No, he's some not. Your wig. Okay, no, no, he's, <laughs> no, he's, he's, in, he's he, unique. He's totally unique. <laughs> no one is more narcissistic. <laughs> even, even like, even like some medieval complete nightmare <laughs> yeah. figure like King John was not as as much of an arsehole as Boris Johnson. <laughs> I suspect that with Johnson, it's literally he can't not be having the top job if there's a possibility he could have it. So that's just a constant activity for him. Not really with a serious intent, with a serious campaign, as we know, you know, when there was an opportunity to actually run for it, he he has now twice, um, you know, because it's not the first time that he's bottled it. He's, he's a bottler. That is his tendency. And I guess with Truss, I, I, I think, you know, in a way, so much of what she does is inexplicable, because perhaps the, the attempt to sort of, put logic and intelligence into her actions when she's a deeply unintelligent, illogical person. Maybe the issue here is we're applying the wrong test. Yes. Seth, um, one dark cloud in the Johnson comeback horizon is the Richard Sharp affair. The BBC chair went in front of the DCMS committee uh, over his alleged involvement in a loan to Boris Johnson, why has the appearance been described as extraordinary? It, it, even on a news-busy day, it seemed to capture a lot well, of attention. Well, for one thing, he has vehemently denied all of the accusations against him of having been responsible for arranging this loan to um, Boris Johnson prior to his appointment. A- and no- sort of admitted them. He's well, done both. The notice he said I was a sort of introduction <laughs> agency. Or exactly. In- the, the key thing here is, firstly, the Sunday Times is actually sticking by its story very robustly. Uh-huh. Um, the Sunday Times was actually quite um, vague as to their exact sources. And I suspect that they are holding on to a lot more material than they've actually spelt out, which mm. would suggest why, running this past their lawyers, they've not just caved in on this. Um, he's trying to argue that the timings are all wrong. And sort of you get the sense he's trying to trip them up on details rather than the gist of the story. The main point here is that he is a major Conservative Party donor. And we shouldn't lose track of what that actually buys you. Um, part of the Conservative mindset around this is this is always a country run by a liberal elite and by a Labour conspiracy, etc. And the way to undo this is to make sure that we appoint loads of Conservatives with loads of public appointments. And they do this very publicly. I mean, they've been um, advertising on the website Conservative Home for over a decade now, public appointments saying we strongly encourage Conservative Party activists to go to these things. But a perk of being a major party donor is that the really serious appointments are flagged up and um, application materials are shown to them. And it's very much, this is the form you need to fill out. We would welcome welcome and encourage this. He hasn't answered specific questions around the materials that he would undoubtedly have had sent to him mm-hmm. routinely as being within that bracket of Tory donor. Um, and so there's a lot more about this that we don't know than we do. And as you say, his... his yes, and, and there was another thing, actually, that, that seemed to fly under the radar in his, in his zeal to exonerate himself over that dinner that the three of them had together. He said, oh, no, 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 that dinner was in May. The three of us met for a private dinner in May mm-hmm. where I discussed with Boris Johnson the BBC's licence fee regime for the coming years. And you think, how do you have a major policy meeting in private Mm. with a foreign millionaire mate present, no civil servant, no one taking notes? Yeah. Um, And you think that's okay. And and it just goes back to to my understanding that that the... the incestuousness of, mm. of these s- circles is so profound that mm. they genuinely don't see what's wrong about meeting with a couple of mates and deciding the future of the BBC over Port and Stilton. And, and if the story hadn't been leaked, we wouldn't be talking about this. Yeah. Quite genuinely, That's we may right. never have known. Yeah. Now, there were a couple of Labour um, MPs that were questioning along a line that seemed to me to suggest there's more to come out. So I think you're onto something. Um, Hannah, just to wrap this up, I, I may be romantically misremembering, but it seems to me that negotiating such internal party disorder 
would be the cross for a PM with a small majority or none at all. How have the Conservatives ended up in this situation having secured a majority of 80? It should be easy street, right? Should be easy. I think the problem is that the Conservatives aren't really one party anymore. So the whole motivation for Brexit was to resolve the question of Europe and create a cohesive Conservative Party. Well, here we are, five or six years down the line, seven years. God, how many years? <laughs> and, uh, and we've got the opposite, a completely fragmented party. You know, we might be onto something saying that Liz Truss was trying to identify herself as like, the, you know, the standard bearer for one faction or so on, whatever she's trying to do. It's certainly riven and uh, and that's the problem. He doesn't lead one party, Sunak. He leads a gang of people who are pointing in different directions and really don't know what they want to do anymore. Mm. Um, and see a landslide uh, in the opposite direction, coming over the hill. Most of them are planning their second careers. It's a nightmare for him. It, it's That is interest, an interesting thing to say in the context of Lee Anderson being appointed, actually, and the fact that the people who seemed most delighted are people like Martin Dobney, mm. Lance Foreman, you know, yeah. the people outside the party to the right of the party that seem to be um, rooting for this. So maybe there's something a little bit darker there. But why doesn't he call an election early? I mean, the answer's obvious because they'll lose. But they'll lose genuinely, later. they're going to lose okay. anyway. Why go through this year of, uh, you know, rot? Why, why do we all have to go through it? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in but your emails. Remember, you can put your question to the panel if you support the podcast. Just search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to find out more. This week's question is about comebacks, which is also the subject of our extra. In theatre, we call this foreshadowing, you see. <laughs> so, Corin says... Given John Cleese's increasingly gammony behaviour, is it a terrible mistake to bring back Faulty Towers? Will Basil turn out to have become leader of the Torquay branch of Reform UK? Anyone? I have a theory about John Cleese um, as somebody who admires a lot of his earlier work, which is that the rage that's in his early work is very noticeable. And John Cleese, since the success of A Fish Called Wanda, has been a very rich man, very independent, very happy. He spent years in psychoanalysis by his own admission. He talks about having had a very troubled relationship with his mother, and clearly that rage is channeled through all of his early work. And I think since he's been quietly semi-retired from the early 90s onwards, that rage is missing. And so ever since he started trying to be funny rather than trying to lash out, there's not been very much to laugh at. So um, I'm not optimistic. No, it's going to be terrible. Uh, anyone, anyone, anyone to uh, play devil's advocate that is really looking forward to I do think it will be awful, but I also think it raises that old question of whether you can separate the art from the artist. So Over 40 Towers is a fabulous thing. Hmm. It's a brilliant piece of drama, comedy, but it is of its time, and so was he then. Can you resurrect it now? I think not, but that might not only be because of Cleese. It's because that format, everything about it, succeeded then. And, and you know... The you see, I, I sort of agreed with both of you until I saw Corinne's email. And it's actually Corinne's email that gives me hope. <laughs> that it might be brilliant if it embraces that gammonness, actually, because, because uh, you know, Basil Fawlty was always 
a, a, a bigot and a racist and a gammon. So maybe the answer and is then who to are have we laughing at? as the local, yeah. you know, UKIP chapter leader and, uh, uh, you know, and floundering around. I can definitely imagine way. this boutique hotel being populated by sort of LGBT hen parties, <laughs> uh, London artist retreats and families with, you know, kids, on, families on unwelcome staycations because they've run out of money to go to Benidorm, like kids flying around. One thing um, I, I noticed about this, because I mean, in terms of whether it'd be good or bad, I mean, I, I, I certainly feel feel um, not particularly optimistic, but I was very struck by the fact that it will also feature his daughter. And so not only is this representative of one thing, which is the slightly depressing <laughs> gammonization of it's John It's also Pete. a Nepo baby It's story. also a Nepo, <laughs> a, a Nepo triumph where, you know, that the Monty Python, yes, they mostly came from middle-class backgrounds, but they... They, they did something amazing with comedy and that, you know, they broke new boundaries and they were all highly talented. And now it's just, well, my dad's famous, so I'm going to be in a sitcom. If you've been in the working world for more than five minutes, chances are you've had a boss that uses the seniority of their position to belittle those unfortunately enough to be below them in the pecking order, especially if they're better at their job or brighter in any way. And if your blood's beginning to boil at this description, take a minute to think of the civil servants who worked under Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary who reportedly made staff feel suicidal and vomit in fear of having to deal with him. Then imagine being off work with the stress this has caused you, only to come back to a Victorian passive-aggressive greeting card from Jacob Rees-Mogg that menacingly reads, Sorry I missed you. I'm sure it is a complete coincidence that it is always the ministers who argue we don't need human rights legislation or workers' protection who are caught trampling their employees. Hannah, you've written this week about this, about the sliding scale between robust management and bullying. Where does one tip into the other, do you think? I think that the word robust itself is, is such a tell. It is misused by people who are so desperate to defend the indefensible. Good management can obviously involve difficult conversations. It doesn't involve this ridiculous um, charade of robustness, which is being aggressive, rude, bullying. Uh, it's it's a word used to disguise something that we all know happens in every, every office, really, but most, most places. I really despise the way this is playing out. Mm. Uh, There's almost something sort of gaslighting about it. Particularly as a journalist, I've only ever worked in what they call, air quotes, highly pressured environments. That's the only kind of um, work I've ever done. Very fast-paced, high output, uh, those kind of environments where essentially, and, and, and Westminster Whitehall will be exactly the same, these kind of individuals, it's not because of the busy work, of the, of the extremely stressful work that goes on in those environments that bullies thrive. It's because of the speed mm. um, that they can get away with it. It's, not, it's only ever judged on the output. It's not judged on how you get to the output. Mm. Mm. Um, so there's no scrutiny of management. And this is what's happening writ large now with Donald Yeah, I mean, and, and, and actually the thing, is, the thing is that that kind of management affects the output negatively anyway. Of course it does, of course it does. I mean, and, you know, and I said in my piece uh, for the iPaper that I, anyone can tell the difference between a bully and a kind of, you know, a strong manager a mile off. Yeah. Uh, good managers don't need this, these kind of tactics because mm. they take you with them on their, mm. their route to where everyone's going and everybody feels a sense of pride in what you achieve together. Under a bully, people have no uh, space to develop themselves. They have no creative uh, support. There's nobody um, encouraging them. And you can, you can see exactly what uh, the complaint is about. I mean, so legally we do have to be very careful, but the idea that, you know, this kind of vomiting and fear and so on is an exaggeration is nonsense. I have seen that kind of thing. Uh, It has such a profound psychological effect on people that they become unable to work to their potential. It destroys whatever endeavour that the team that is managed by this bully is trying to achieve. Yeah, And, and I think what's interesting is to see people write pieces, give interviews about this and 
to read them and all I can think is you've just outed yourself basically as someone who treats the staff horribly. But by what you say, you've just revealed yourself to yeah. be a terrible, terrible... People who defend um, this kind of behaviour because they think it's just part of the only way you can get things done in Whitehall or in journalism or in whatever environment simply lack the intelligence to do a better job. Mm. Seth Hugo Rifkin, a friend of the podcast in The Times, points out the lack of a real smoking gun like there was with Priti Patel and Gavin Williamson. You know, being a twat is an sackable offence. So what sort of political space does Rishi Sunak have to use his discretion? And what is the smart choice, actually, politically? Well, life isn't fair and politics isn't fair. And the prime minister, as the first among equals in the cabinet, can actually hire and fire who he or she wants yep. to without a reason, frankly. Um, and they may decide, as has happened with many ministers throughout history, where they just think, this person's a liability. They may be totally blameless on a particular thing. but. There are so many stories and complications coming out. And there comes a point where even if someone's completely innocent, the energy expended by the government defending this person is not worth it. Um, and so the smart thing to do would just be to run a million miles. The trouble when you have a government like this that's running on empty fumes towards the end of the you know, fourth term now is that you've got a finite number of people to a point. You, a decent number of the people who are on the back benches have actually been sacked from other jobs as well. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to point out that all this was going on at precisely the time of the Priti Patel bullying affair in which she was found to have bullied her staff yeah. by the person appointed to make that judgment. And the person she bullied lost his job. And the person who made that report lost his job, but she kept mm. hers. And so I I think that, that Dominic Raab's defense, well, no one made a formal complaint, is quite, quite a peculiar one, mm. because in that situation, you just wouldn't. Well, they, there had literally been a public punishment beating of the, the previous person who raised this as a complaint. Um, Seth, the, the civil service fast stream is beset by a lot of problems at the moment, strikes, cuts. Is there also a reputational risk that, that bright people will simply be turned off serving and Whitehall dysfunction will intensify? I can't see a 25-year-old version of myself deciding to go into the civil service as I did then in current circumstances. Yes, I think there will be, but I don't actually think the reputational risk of the civil service is by any means the biggest problem here. Mm. Um, the problem is the civil service is dysfunctional, that it's being hollowed out. Um, yep. No one goes into the civil service for the money or the pay and conditions. They, they do this because they believe fundamentally in public service. And if you cannot do your job, which is the cause of many of these strikes, quite aside from the pay conditions, I think that's a much bigger risk than people just simply thinking, well, it, it's not something that looks terribly appealing career-wise. That's almost a secondary condition. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think the biggest benefit uh, when I worked for the civil service is that you had sort of picked a side. Mm. You knew you were doing good work, you know. And so to 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 know that you you can't do good work mm. uh, must be psychologically a huge problem. Arthur, you've spent a, a decent amount of time around the armed forces and as a diplomat around politicians, the stereotype of the army is one of intimidation. The stereotype of Whitehall is one of gentility. Who's more difficult to work with, officers or politicians? Well, I, actually, the, the thing with the military, and, you know, I, I've, my, my time around the military has always been as a civilian, but it is that you have an extremely clear structure. You know who's in charge, and particularly if you're in uniform, an order has various kind of legal force to it, in, unless it's in some way, you know, against international law or, or, or military law or whatever. Funnily enough, in my experience, you don't see bullying behavior, particularly in the military. I'm, I'm sure it might be different uh, in an in a environment where you're sort of talking about fairly uh, junior squaddies being shouted at. But in, in the kind of the, the, the more senior ranks, you don't really see bullying behavior because people know exactly where the hierarchy lies. I think the reason that politics and the civil service is so susceptible to this, I mean, at least from my observation, is that you've got people, particularly politicians, who see themselves 
as high achievers. You know, the, the mentality, that the, the psychology of someone who goes into politics is someone who obviously wishes to have power, wishes to have influence. Uh, and in many cases, not all, but in many cases, they're in environments that don't correspond with their own sense of status. You know, being being a minister, particularly a junior minister in the UK, uh, you, you have to do quite a lot of mundane and, and boring stuff, you know, and you're not sort of at the UN Security Council negotiating world peace, even if, you know, in your mind you should be. And I wonder if, <laughs> if for Dominic Raab, that, that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, so I, I think it, it creates this sort of scenario where people are very ready to be angry, to feel perhaps that, um, you know, that they've, they, they've somehow been let down by their people, where in fact, what they've been let down is by their own personal inadequacy. And of course, that's the most painful let down of all. Yes. And I wonder if there's also an element of some juxtaposition of someone appointed versus someone who is there by, a, uh, by virtue of their political mandate. I wonder if there is also that interplay going on. Because when I worked for a non-departmental uh, agency, the atmosphere was very, very different. When I went on secondment to a department with a minister, there was a really different hierarchy there because yeah. there were people who believed that they were there by the people's will mm. and you are somehow the servant mm. that yeah. needs to deliver that. And that yeah. skews ordinary employment structures, I think. Um Bernard Gleeson in The Banshees of Inisherin, lovely film, says nobody remembers nice. Is that is that true, do you think, Arthur? No, I, I don't think it is true, actually. I, I can um, recall some very agreeable, you know, frankly, just decent people I've had the pleasure of working for. Funnily enough, you know, Jeremy Haywood, I, I did meet him a couple of times and he's universally praised uh but someone who who's perhaps less well known peter ricketts now lord ricketts uh -huh. has appeared on this podcast is just an incredibly nice bloke and you know has held down some of the most complicated jobs in government cabinet minister jack straw is a is a decent bloke i've, I've dealt with him plenty um so uh you know you you it's perfectly possible to be nice and be highly effective and successful and of course uh it's it is only those people who are inadequate in some personal way and i think that's the issue with dominic raab who behave in this unpleasant way to the people around them it's maybe true. it's something very to true. do with dominic's um <laughs> hannah prime ministers are always hard to work with even gordon brown once famously directed his anger at the printer in the gossip that we hear what politicians come across as very decent and which ones have a more ferguson-esque reputation so i mean i i don't know whether she particularly comes across very decent <laughs> but the rumors i've heard about working for esther mcveigh aren't great right yes yes i can see that Can't say too much but, uh, <laughs> libel claxon <laughs> i know I've, as i was writing my notes on that i did think can we get away with it yes i think we can Seems, I do have a solid source. She seems like a dick. And <laughs> she seems like a dick and people who work for her think she's a dick. I think that's perfectly all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Seth, is there an issue of safeguarding here, actually? It's something we don't talk about enough. Is there a duty on the executive as an employer regarding the mental health of its employees. Yes, absolutely. Um, I started my working life as a humble research assistant at Westminster, and the culture was awful. Bullying was far from uncommon, whether on isolated incidents or people who were repeatedly bullied by certain bosses. There were all sorts of personal issues, in some cases parliamentarians with substance issues, which would roll over into working for them, being a living nightmare for the staff that I knew who would work for them. Mm. Um, exacerbated by this system in the House of Commons and the House of Lords where it's not clear who you're working for, whether you're working for the system or whether you're working for the individual and no clear reporting lines. Things have been reformed a bit since then with um, uh, anonymised bullying complaints procedures and so on, but um, it's not a, a healthy place at all. Part of it is that politics in general doesn't reward good mental health. Um, we tend to reward, when we look at who we look up to in politics, strident people people who took a stand, people who are principled, as they see it. But sometimes it can be people who took rather extreme positions. Um, we and also they're stubborn. Yeah. 
And we also tend to reward winners. We like people who won. But in something like particularly a first-past-the-post system, winning means winning one more vote than the other person, no matter how high or how low the vote is, no matter how divisive the campaign. And so that encourages a lot of very unhealthy behaviours. Um, I don't necessarily agree with some of the conversations around this which linked into the idea of depolarization. Um, weirdly, I'm a massive fan of polarization because I think that there is a moral free vacuum at the centre of the argument on depolarization. in that if we think about it in a cuddly way, maybe we could find some common ground with Donald Trump and agree to split the difference. And, you know, maybe some Mexican immigrants are rapists. This would be the logical extension. So I think that sometimes actually being tethered to some things in politics, like saying, we are not going to be strident, we are not going to assume an extreme position, is itself actually a form of polarisation and Mm. can be healthy. But you need to have some idea of what you want to achieve out of your politics, what is healthy and what is constructive. And we don't use that as our starting point for our political behaviours. Arthur, one final question. Is there a connection between the endemic culture of bullying, for which many fee-paying schools are notorious in the culture in Whitehall. I cannot, I cannot help but feel that what is going on in many departments is simply a sort of extension of the fagging culture. Yeah, I mean, I think, tragically, uh, child abuse is a feature of British boarding schools, and I expect lots of people listening to this will say that's not fair, but... Um, it it is uh you know there's plenty of evidence for that and uh what that is all about is people abusing certain power relationships and it seems to me that we see this inbuilt into our political culture now of course there are loads of boarding schools where there's no bullying and there are loads of bullies who didn't go to boarding school but it it but it seems that there are certain people who live their entire life in these hierarchical institutions so they go straight from boarding school into universities, particularly the type of university where you live in a, a fairly small uh, community environment. And then you go straight from that into perhaps the, the bar or other very traditional institutionalized structures, and then from there into politics and, and, and the House of Commons, which again has the sort of Hogwarts feel to it. With a sort of attitude that goes along the lines, I had to eat shit, and now it's yes, your turn. Exactly. And it, 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 it taught me a thing or two about dot, 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 whatever the fucking thing you think it taught you about. Mm. And, and so that is, you know, tragically, I think it is more of a feature uh, than we would probably like to ad- admit. Man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. It's nearly the end of the show, so what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week, Arthur? Uh, this one, it, it's not not actually uh, sort of news in the sense that it only just happened, but it's definitely under the radar. So as is probably well known, in this country, you can go on to Companies House and look up who owns a business. And you can also, you should be able to know who is the... Um, the you know the owner of the shares or some some other beneficial ownership now that doesn't always work like that people are sometimes lazy or don't fill in the details properly and and, and certainly not in good faith however that's the system due to a november ruling of the european court of justice which of course we're no longer part of the court of justice of the european union these types of open ownership register have been deemed an infringement of EU privacy laws. And as a result, certain EU countries, including important countries such as Germany and the Netherlands, have now suspended what used to be these open registers. This may be the one and only benefit of Brexit. Uh, I, I've, I certainly haven't encountered any others. It, it is, it, it's a strange ruling because it seems to confuse the importance of privacy for for the protection of a private life with the importance of transparency um, as a bulwark against corruption and other uh, you know other other sort of dangerous things that can happen if if people are able to amass vast resources without being transparent about it but yeah a, a, an odd case of brexit giving us a tiny 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 benefit is there any uh you know restriction on that in terms of the size of the turnover of the organization so if it reaches a specific 
size it has to become transparent or no? Well, no. I mean, obviously, there are. Th- this is about private companies. Clearly, if you have a a public listed company, by definition, you know, if it's traded on a stock exchange or something, then ownership is, in that sense, easier to know about. Um, but still, no. You could have a major organisation, huge operator with with no. Yeah, open. indeed, indeed, and and of course, um, many such organisations exist under the British aegis in our offshore territories. So it's not that we can afford to be very smug, but on the specific nature of British registered businesses, as you'll all know, Companies House is has a search engine and the search engine equivalent for that, for example, in the Netherlands is now in suspension. Mm. Seth, how about you? Um, it's a story which hasn't been in the news at all. And uh, that's simply to ask what happens to the Boris Johnson report of the Committee on Privileges? The formal complaint was filed with them on the 21st of April of last year. Uh, it had leaked uh, in the press from uh, at least one member of Parliament who was on the Committee of Privileges that apparently the evidence was meant to be devastating. This is something that actually yeah. had before them even before that because the Sue Gray report put that on pause until then. It was supposed to be due for publication in November of last year. Uh, and we keep getting a hint of manana, manana. Um, I'm very curious as to where the, this has the, gone. The last the I saw anniversary. is that they had looked through the evidence and were going to call witnesses in the spring. Mm. <laughs> That's the last I've seen of it. And on that, actually, uh, how about his resignation honours? Another thing that seems to have disappeared well, without that... trace. I mean, I had a look at how long it took for Mays to be published and for Camerons to be published and for Browns to be published. And in every case, it was no more than 60 days, really, after they left office. Some of them were even sooner. And Johnson, I mean, he's been well, gone there'll, there'll be, um, almost a slight, four months now. It'll be a slightly different lead time because actually, weirdly, the uh, list is often filed some months before they actually leave office. For example, May herself announced that she would be going several months, which is one of those typical last-ditch things to say, please let me do just a few months more. I'm going, I'm going. Um, And yes, you're absolutely right. But so did Johnson. Well, Johnson... There was a a leadership battle, so he would have known that he's going in in June. That's right. But Johnson had two lists. Johnson had a list that he put in in May, (laughs) which took until October to actually come out. (laughs) And that was really suspicious. And we know of two names, um, one which is in the public domain and one amongst an individual who's highly litigious, so I won't name them. Um, But then you're right, the second list would probably came out belatedly. It may well have been submitted a while later. We know at least one name that's run in some serious trouble, and it's likely that several more. Apropos of nothing at all, Richard Sharp, in his evidence session, um, referred to Lord Dacre at one point, and no one picked him up on it. Um, so that, again, is what we call foreshadowing in the <laughs> theatre. How about you, Hannah? So um, this one, not upbeat at all, I'm afraid, but very important. There's a journalist called Louise Tickle, who's a freelance journalist, writes a lot for The Guardian and uh, podcast for Tortoise, who is doing some brilliant work for uh, looking at the family court, which isn't somewhere you'd necessarily expect, you know, big stories to come out. But there are some shocking, really, miscarriages of justice, but also... uh, issues around the treatment of vulnerable pe- vulnerable young people and children. And the story she, she uh, published with The Guardian this week is around a suicidal 12-year-old girl who, by all accounts, is incredibly unwell and incredibly vulnerable, has made many attempts on her life, is very difficult to contain, violent and so on, tries to escape her mental health support a lot. But she is now currently locked away in a room with no windows Uh, and has been in that condition since the 27th of January, with the only human contact with her through a sort of shutter on the door. 12 years old. Um, Her mother is incredibly worried that for her life, doesn't believe that the the, um, social care support and the mental hospital that she is currently in can actually look after her. and a judge has this week decided to, to make this public via Louise because she is so concerned about the situation um, that this exposes. So it's not just about this case and this girl who's being known legally as, as Becky, but it's also about uh, the whole system. So um, the council that uh, – this is happening in Staffordshire, 
she has essentially been through um, numerous placements in the last few months. All of them have failed her. She's been shunted around. Nobody's taken any responsibility for her health or well-being. In fact, in one of her placements, she was allegedly actively abused. So this girl is being completely failed, but what it reveals is that there is simply not the structure at all in some parts of the country now to support vulnerable children who need the most significant and important care to keep them alive, to keep them well, to to basically um, help them recover some kind of future and Mm. life. And it's so shocking um, that I thought that I would bring it up here. And I'm, I'm I sorry th- to I leave it on a sad gets, moment. But... No, no, I hope the story gets the attention mm. it deserves. And it, it sounds like it deserves much attention. Um, I can finish us off on a slightly more um, upbeat note. The government's public order bill has been absolutely spanked in the Lords. Um, they've lost a series of votes on a lot of the controversial measures in the um, in the bill about slow marching, about proactively stopping protests that you think might cause disruption. And uh, last night they suffered the biggest of those defeats, 284 to 209 votes on the notion of police using stop and search even where they don't have a suspicion. And the person that spearheaded that revolt really was Brian Paddock. Um, and he knows of what he speaks. So a, a, a huge defeat for the government, and I hope this means they rethink this awful piece of legislation. And that's the show. Thanks so much to Seth. Thank you. To Hannah. Thank you. And to Arthur. Thank you. And stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello and thanks from me to Marcus B, Jonathan Sharp, Tom Redpath, Mark and Paul Van Huck. Many thanks from me for your support too. Katie Jeffrey, Suran Nambiar, Andrew Moriarty, Nikki Neighbour, and Emma Baird. Best wishes and our enormous gratitude from me to Begram Samru, Paul Ditter, Fiona Whelan, Paul, and Thomas Cooper. And finally from me, a big thank you to Anne Garcerud, Richard Stelling, Neil Postlethwaite, Samuel Bale, and Ulrich Bischholz. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Alex Andreu with Hannah Fern, Arthur Snell and Seth Tavos. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. With additional production from Kasia Tomaszewicz, Jack Gerbertson and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh, God, what now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, always leave them wanting more. Certainly never leave them wanting less. The art of a comeback is a delicate one. Too much reliance on old material feels like a cash grab. Too much new stuff will alienate the diehard fans who just want to hear Creep again. Liz Truss has very much been playing the oldies this week, complaining that it was the lefty economic establishment, those Marxist bond traders in the city, what got her, and insisting simultaneously both that actually she was right and that nobody warned her she was wrong. It's been fascinating and miserable to watch. It both revolts one and makes one want to prod it like a dead animal carcass washed (laughs) up on a beach. If you make a terrible film or album, people still remember the good ones. But politicians are much more often defined by their mistakes. How different is culture from politics when it comes to comeback? Who wants to go? So, I mean, if you make a bad film, it doesn't have huge social consequences. Some people may be bored in the cinema and they have spent £10 of their money in a way that they later regret. Oh, I don't know. I I, I think Geostorm has the capacity (laughs) to kill. (laughs) But if you're a politician and you make a terrible mistake, it has terrible consequences. So I think it's fair that you only get one go as a politician, maybe two.
But artists, you know, of course we give them uh, second, third, fifth chances. If we absolutely love what they did at one point, we we want that we want that relationship again, that connection. Mm. So we keep going back. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to Backers on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, and our undying devotion. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>